Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so... Let's get started. Dr. Fauci, you've joked a couple times today already about the difference in that you feel in being kind of the spokesperson for this issue in this administration versus the previous one. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel released from what you had been doing for the last year? Yeah, but you said I was joking about it. I was very serious (laughs) about it. I wasn't joking. That was Dr. Anthony Fauci year-long member of the Presidential Task Force on the Coronavirus. He was speaking at a White House press conference last week. We'll play the rest of that clip a little bit later, but we've actually got five great science stories for you today, so let's get started on them. First, Professor J. Scott Miller on what's going on in the night sky this month. February brings us farther from the date of shortest daylight back in late December, which happens to be the astronomical beginning of winter, and closer to the first day of spring, astronomically around the 20th of March. That means that we are gaining a bit more daylight, and conversely a bit less night, as we slowly trudge toward summer. For those of us interested in seeing the night sky, that means we have a bit longer to wait until darkness comes. Still, Getting dinner out of the way and heading out at dusk this month, I can search to see what discoveries can be made. Mars is a lone planet to be found as darkness falls. High up in the south-southwestern skies, it competes well with some of the brightest stars seen in the winter sky. It is just west or to the right, as I am facing south, of the bright star Aldebaran, marking the red eye of Taurus the Bull. Mars is much dimmer now than it was several months ago. Back around mid-October, we were at a close point in our orbit to Mars, what was known as opposition. Being close to a planet makes it brighter than usual in our skies. Now that we have moved out ahead of Mars in our faster orbit, its brightness has been on the decline. But Mars may be shining bright for another reason, at least in our imaginations. On February 18th, if all goes well, the Perseverance rover will land in Jezero Crater on Mars. According to NASA's website on the mission, nasa.gov perseverance, Perseverance is designed to better understand the geology of Mars and seek signs of ancient life. The mission will collect and store a set of rocks and soil samples that could be returned to Earth in the future. It will also test new technology to benefit future robotic and human exploration of Mars, including a first, the Mars helicopter called Ingenuity. 
Ingenuity is a small autonomous aircraft that will be carried to the surface of the Red Planet attached to the belly of Perseverance rover. Its mission is experimental in nature and completely independent of the rover's science mission. In the months after landing, the helicopter will be placed on the surface to test, for the first time ever, powered flight in the thin Martian atmosphere. So Mars may seem to be shining a bit brighter in our eyes. A new rover on the surface that can only enhance the information of the Red Planet gathered by past landers, rovers, orbiters, and telescopic studies. And the exciting possibility of a drone helicopter mission that, if successful, could lead the way to exploring parts of Mars not accessible by rovers. High up in the southeast is a pattern of stars known as Orion the Hunter. I have mentioned Orion in previous broadcasts, but as it is the dominant winter constellation, I will take the time to connect its stars to the figure making up the constellation. Three close stars forming a straight line catch people's eyes, as this is kind of rare when one sees randomly scattered stars across the sky. These three stars are the belt stars, marking the waist of Orion. As darkness continues to come on, one might see what appear to be three more stars just south of the belt. This marks a sword that Orion carries there. From there, two bright stars stand out. North of the belt is a reddish-colored star called Betelgeuse. This star and a dimmer one west of it, called Bellatrex, mark the shoulders of this giant hunter. A dim group of three stars, about midway between these two and above a line connecting the two, mark his head. South of the belt is another bright star, Rigel. It is sort of bluish-white in appearance. It can be thought of as the left knee of the giant, assuming, that is, that Orion is facing us. East of Rigel is the dimmer star Saif, which is located below the belt stars on the same side as Betelgeuse. One can picture this as the other knee. As I have mentioned in past broadcasts, finding Orion gives one the chance to find other constellations. The three stars marking the belt can be used to draw a line extending to Aldebaran in Taurus the Bull. The face of the bull is a V-shaped pattern of stars known as the Hyades Star Cluster. West of this cluster is a tighter grouping of stars known as the Pleiades, sometimes called the Seven Sisters. Now, a count will reveal six easily seen stars, while binoculars and telescopes reveal lots more. There are many stories about the Pleiades, even some that try to account for the missing sister. An Iroquoian legend speaks of the dance of the seven sisters. One night, hearing what they considered a glorious song, they danced off toward the source. But the more they danced, the lighter their feet became and they floated into the sky. The youngest sister heard a familiar voice and followed it back to Earth, using a falling star to make the trip. Sadly, when she reached Earth, she disappeared, causing her mother to warn the other sisters to stay in the sky and dance, to avoid the fate of their youngest sister. So February may be the shortest month of the year, but it holds more than a couple of interesting things to see. All one needs is the availability of clear skies and the willingness to go outside away from the technology that distracts us.
Thanks, Scott. And speaking of mapping the stars, here's an interesting twist. It's about how modern highways in Australia may have been laid down by Aborigines thousands of years ago based on the stars. This story is by the folks at EarthDate. From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is EarthDate. It seems that Australia's modern highways may have been laid out according to the stars. Australian Aboriginals, like many ancient cultures, have an elaborate oral history passed down through generations to help them navigate and find food and water in their desert environment. This knowledge base uses visual memory aids from the land and the sky. When ancient Aboriginal navigators found a successful path through the desert, they looked for a path in the stars that mimicked it. They'd used stars to represent water holes and hilltops and gave them the same names. At night, they could point out the star patterns to others who had never made the trip, describing the path from one waypoint to the next. To help travelers remember the maps, First Nation clans preserved them in song, which they could sing along their journey to recall place names, orientations, and distances. In the process, they taught these songs and the star maps they reflected to younger generations. This navigation tool, used by First Nation tribes for millennia, was only disclosed to researchers a few years ago. Many of these so-called song lines are still used in Aboriginal treks today. And when researchers laid the song lines over a modern map of Australia, they found that many highways appeared to line up with the star patterns. These roads were set along cattle trails established by early immigrant ranchers who were probably following song lines shown to them by Aboriginal guides. I'm Scott Tinker. EarthDate is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from EarthX, bringing people together to build a sustainable future at earthx.org. And you can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org. Thanks to EarthDate for that story. Next, it's Amanda Fuller, Executive Director of the Kentucky Academy of Science. She's going to be continuing her series of interviews with undergraduate students who won research awards at last year's annual KAS conference. Today, we'll be hearing from Callie Tackett of Northern Kentucky University. She'll be describing her research on using brain waves to control prosthetic arms. Hi, this is Amanda Fuller with the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm doing a series of interviews with students who won our competitions at our recent annual meeting of the Kentucky Academy of Science. And today I'm talking to Kaylee Tackett. She was a winner in our engineering section. Hi, Kaylee. Hi. Tell us where you are and tell us just a little bit about your research. Well, I'm actually a physics and engineering physics major at Northern Kentucky University. And I got this amazing opportunity to choose my research project. And I have always been interested in the medical field, but I kind of wanted to be more hands-on and build and design things. I was like, what can I do with engineering and the medical field? And I came across these mind-controlled robots. So my research is over a mind-controlled prosthetic arm that uses EEG sensors, motor imagery, and brain-computer interfaces. 
it sounds very science fiction and it's pretty fantastical to sort of read about it and see your presentation. I want to direct people to our website. If you go to kyscience.org, we have our whole online program there. And because the meeting was virtual this year, people can see all of the presentations that have been uploaded. So you can see Kaylee's presentation there and you can sort of see what she's doing. She's actually got a very cool illustration of the 3D printed prosthetic arm. (laughs) I think prosthetics is such a cool application of the technology that you're talking about, Kaylee. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the state of prosthetics right now and how this research really moves that forward. Well, so far there's, there's about two categories of these robotic prosthetics. You can have either implanted ECOG devices into your brain. It is very invasive procedures, but they are a little bit more reliable. So with the implanted devices, it would control the arm just like our EEG systems will, except it's all internal. There is also, on the other end of the spectrum, there is a muscle controlled where the sensors are placed on the muscles and it reads those electrical signals. And we really wanted something in the middle of those two so that you don't have to go through extremely expensive invasive surgeries to to have the opportunity to have a prosthetic that is controlled via thought. But it also provides something for those who may not have the muscle capability, whether it been removed or the nerves being damaged during surgery or amputation. This kind of is a middle of the road. It's more cost effective. It's non-invasive. You don't need to have the muscle control or capabilities to use this. So this is kind of something that we were like, okay, we want this to be suitable for everyone. And how can we get that to happen? So what you're using is something that's called motor imagery. And it's just a fascinating thing to think about it. So walk us through how this works. Like, what do you mean when you say motor imagery? Okay. When you perform a movement, it is very natural. You don't think about performing the movement. You don't think about reaching for a glass of water or how hard you're gripping. You just do it. It's part of our natural process as human beings. We don't think about what we are doing. Well, when you perform that movement, you have a certain brainwave function, and that can be seen on my presentation as well. The difference between actually performing the movement and those brain waves along with motor imagery. Well, with motor imagery, you just imagine that you're going to do the movement. So just keep your body still and close your eyes and think about reaching for that glass of water. And what we notice is the brain waves are extremely similar. And it seems through research, using PET scans and EEG systems, what we can kind of see is that with the motor imagery and physical movement, they're the same, except the motor imagery stops at a a spinal level phase that the physical movement just moves on through that. So we're hoping that by using motor imagery, we can make the use of this arm as natural as possible and get it to the point where you don't actually have to think of commands. You can just control it as you would a normal arm. It's such an amazing idea, and it's easy to imagine how it could make prosthetics more accessible and more affordable to a lot of people. It's really interesting to think about how you have to retrain your brain to make that work. I mean, it's amazing in a way that 
the brain waves are the same if you do it versus if you just imagine that you do it. <laughs> but retraining your brain, that could be hard to do. It can be. There's a specific training simulation that comes with our headset where we have to move this box. And if you imagine a box on a table for one trial, and then the next trial, your box is off the table or just in a blank space in your mind, it won't work. So you have to really train on focus and making sure that nothing changes in your your mind space that you're trying to, to control things with. And that's part of the, really the most difficult part of the research so far is just retraining how we think and how we want to control things. And so as part of your research, you actually put the headset on yourself and you measured your own brain waves. And yeah. I imagine this is something that makes some of the research easier, but also is something that the pandemic makes it hard to have research subjects right now. So it's also just an interesting little adjustment to yeah. the development process. So what was that like when you were doing it? Is it awkward? Is it hard to use? It is incredibly interesting and fascinating. But but of course, I, I love the the medical side of it. So watching my raw EEG data while I'm messing with my facial expressions or thinking about different things, if I'm getting excited over something or if I'm getting disinterested, watching it change as you're changing the channel on the TV is just fascinating. So I, I definitely enjoy being able to do the research on myself just because I get to be the one to wear it and really focus on what I'm doing and just do the the analysis on these this raw data. So it's definitely fun. And so tell us a little bit more about what's coming up in the future. It's a long process to actually get to where you have an arm that's usable. So what's coming next? Our next step is actually to build and wire the arm. So our focus up until now has been solely on the the system, the the EEGs, the BCIs, getting to the point that we can control it effortlessly. What does BCI stand for? Brain computer interface. It's what connects us to the robot and getting the software requirements that we needed and the licensing to export all this data and run analysis on it. That was our first step. And then at this point now, we're ready to start building the arm and connecting it and hopefully using it. Well, it's really interesting. I think a lot of people are going to want to follow the progress of this. And I wish you the best of luck. It sounds like it could be something that has a great impact for folks who need prosthetics. And I want to thank you, Kaylee, for joining us on Bench Talk and talking about your research. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Amanda Fuller for conducting that interview, and thank you, Callie Tackett, for filling us in on your amazing research. And congratulations on your award. If you want to hear a couple other interviews with research students, check out our show of January 25th, 2021. But now, let's hear from the White House press conference with Dr. Anthony Fauci about what it's been like to work for two different presidents, Donald Trump and Joseph Biden, in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
This press conference was on January 21st, 2021. Dr. Fauci, you've joked a couple times today already about the difference in that you feel in being kind of the spokesperson for this issue in this administration versus the previous one. Can you can you talk a little bit about how free, how much different do you feel less constrained? You know, I mean, you you for so many times you stood up behind the podium with Donald Trump standing behind you. That was a different feeling, I sh I'm, I'm sure, than it is today. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel released from what you had been doing for the last year? Yeah, but you said I was joking about it. I was very serious <laughs> about it. I wasn't joking. Um, no, actually, I mean, I mean, obviously, I don't want to be going back, you know, over history, but it was very clear that there were things that were said, uh, be it regarding things like hydroxychloroquine and other things like that, that really was an uncomfortable because they were not based on scientific fact. I can tell you, I, I take no pleasure at all in being in a situation of contradicting the president. So it was really something that you didn't feel that you could actually say something and there wouldn't be any repercussions about it. The idea that you can get up here and talk about what you know, what the evidence, what the science is, and know that's it. Let the science speak. It is somewhat of a liberating feeling. You're one of the few holdovers from the previous administration, this current one. What has been your experience with this new team? And in your view, what would have been different in terms of the trajectory of this outbreak from the start had a team like this been in place at the beginning? Well, I can tell you my, my impression of, of, of what's going on right now. The team, I don't, I don't know if I can extrapolate other things, but one of the things that was very clear as recently as about 15 minutes ago when I was with the president, is that one of the things that we're going to do is to be completely transparent, open, and honest. If things go wrong, not point fingers, but to correct them and to make everything we do be based on science and evidence. I mean, that was literally a conversation I had 15 minutes ago with the president. And he has said that multiple times. That you, uh, looking back on, on your comments over the last 10 or 12 months, would like to now, with that sort of license, to, to, to amend or clarify? No, I mean, I, I always said everything on the base. That's why I got in trouble sometimes. Basically banished for a, for a few months uh, there for a while. <laughs> you feel like you're back now? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Finally, reading. On the one hand, you would think that this pandemic would drive many of us to books and reading more. After all, what else is there to do while we're trapped at home? But is that what's happened? Are we reading more books? Well, Dr. Leslie Moise is here to update us on that and to offer tips on how to face that stack of books that you might have been planning to read but maybe haven't quite gotten to yet. And she'll end with a poem specifically written for this show. The 
This is part of Binge Talk's series about science and everyday life. Following stories about emotions during the pandemic that I gave on October 2nd, 2020. Today I'm talking about the science of reading. I usually read five or six books per week, including books that I reread one or two a week. At the beginning of the pandemic, I expected to read more. It hasn't worked out that way. I now read one or two books per week, and with very few exceptions, I only reread old favorites. I just can't get into new books, even ones I have looked forward to reading, and I have heard lots of people are having the same problem. The Personal Philosophy Project, a YouTube channel that discusses the importance of reading at the end of every video, ends with the quote, Books save lives, so keep reading. So why are so many of us having trouble reading books? According to Oliver J. Robinson at University College London, anxiety and fear are two different things. Fear is specific and short-term. Anxiety is long-term and does not have an end in sight. For example, when I competed in events, I occasionally came across a cross-country jump that I was afraid I would fall off the horse going over that jump. But once the competition was over, that fear was gone. In anxiety, like many of us are experiencing in the pandemic, nobody knows when the pandemic will end, so there's uncertainty and the anxiety is ongoing. Short-term fear has benefits and sharpens our attention. We can see danger and escape. Anxiety has long-term debilitation. For example, Anxiety can affect memory and concentration. Many people during the pandemic are finding it difficult to read or do other hobbies that are much loved but require focus. Ironically, according to a 2009 study at the University of Gloucester, reading decreases stress. So what can we do? Well, like I said, I'm rereading old favorites, which still counts as reading but I'm reading them because I know I won't get any ugly surprises between the covers of the book, at least. And I'm not berating myself because I'm not reading those other books that I'd planned on reading. Reading takes me into other worlds, other times. It lets me spend time with other people. And in this case, people or characters that I know and love. In Anne Lamott's book about writing, Bird by Bird, she suggests breaking down scenes into little pieces so that the writer can get them done. And I know that when I have knitted before the pandemic that I often broke big knitting projects into just I'll do one or two rows today and slowly the rows build up. So I'm going to try reading new books in the same way, a page at a time, one page today, another page tomorrow, or maybe even a paragraph today and the next paragraph tomorrow. We'll see how that works. And now I have a poem to share. Reading. Before the pandemic, I loved the joy of vanishing into a different world, a different time. The covers of a book, my portal into lands uncharted. Now, the lack of a map bumps my anxiety into an unacceptable constant. I need the known, the familiar. Give me my comfortable, well-known characters and events. Peter Mayle eating his way through Provence. Miss Marple patiently knitting. 
Mary Russell meeting Sherlock Holmes for the first time, and for my hundredth reading. Even a funny cookbook I can read, one recipe at a time, like Anne Hodgman or Peg Bracken. The familiar words offer solace in this time of pain. Thanks, Leslie. Dr. Leslie Moise has been busy preparing for the publication of her next book, Under the Pomegranate Tree, and she's writing a historical novel on the life of Julian of Norwich. Thank you, Leslie Moise. Well, that's our show. You've been listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. Here's hoping you find the time to see some stars and do some reading. See you next week.